If you've been listening to Crime Capsule these last few weeks, you know we're celebrating Valentine's Day early this year with a series on crimes of passion. On our previous episodes, Jack Bales regaled us with the story of baseball player Billy Jurgis shot by his jealous girlfriend in a Chicago hotel room. This week, we're looking at a different kind of crime of passion, one where the perpetrator acted in order to win someone's love, not to end it. But things didn't work out the way this particular perp thought it would. As we all know, it hardly ever does. To tell this story, we're traveling back in time even further to the 1920s, to Atlanta, to a city that two generations after the devastation of the Civil War is back on the rise, growing, sometimes in uncomfortable ways, thriving, but often at a cost, and struggling to maintain law and order, to establish justice amid a deeply inequitable social, racial, and economic landscape. Here to bring this city alive is our guest, Tom Hughes, author of Hanging the Peachtree Bandit, the true tale of Atlanta's infamous Frank Dupree. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great to be here. Let me ask you, how did you first get interested in the Frank Dupree story? Well, it's rather a long story, but I originally had an interest in Victorian history, and I wrote a couple of articles for a uh, London magazine, little local anecdotal history pieces, and they, they, I got some positive feedback, and then I went into writing about Victorian clerical scandals and published a couple of books in England that didn't do very well, and I said to myself, well, why not do something closer to home? They say, write about what you know. And so I started digging into uh, old newspapers. And I think the digitization of newspapers, although I started really before digitization, but the digitization has really fed this whole surge in, in true crime because that's where you find all the stuff. And, and I started looking into Atlanta uh, scandals and sensations. And I, the first one I found was uh, Daisy of the Leopard Spots, which I... Uh, published a book, uh, McFarland Press, back in 2012. And then I wanted to follow it up. And I I just, by then I was into digitization and you could just search like Atlanta murder. And you, by the number of hits you got, you could determine, well, this looks like pretty significant. And I found this Peachtree Bandit case and, and dug into it. And uh, the result is this book, Hanging the Peachtree Bandit. So... How well known is the Frank Dupree story in and around Atlanta today? It's known, but I wouldn't say it's celebrated by any means or 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 memorable. Uh, the reaction I got to the book was very positive, and uh, I because we're in the centennial year, uh, December fifteenth of of twenty twenty one was the. 100th anniversary of the murder, and 100 years ago now, in January, the manhunt was on. They, you know, Frank was at large, and the police were being much criticized, and uh, 
um, saying this desperado had uh, killed someone in broad daylight during the height of the Christmas shopping season and then run through the heart of Atlanta's uh, shopping district and, and got away and the police were all idiots. <clears throat> so it's, it's known, but it's not terribly well known. Atlanta does not particularly celebrate its its past. There's the Civil War, which everybody knows about the uh, Sherman and all that. And then you jump more or less to the Civil Rights period, which Atlanta was one of the, the leading communities affected by that and leading in many ways. But in between that sort of 70-year period, for a variety of reasons, people don't really like to bring up. You know, it's funny because... As I was reading your book, what what struck me was the fact that when this murder took place in 1921, I mean, the and this is something I want to come back to several times because it matters, this whole city was just engrossed by it. It was the event for a year in town. It was extraordinary what the civic reaction was Atlanta-wide. The... 1920s, early 20s, were a difficult time across the country. But in the Southeast, especially, you had the end of the war and the resulting unemployment. All the people who were soldiers or uh, uh, part of the infrastructure of, uh, of the military. Then you had the flu, the Spanish flu, uh, Russian flu, whichever. And then you had the boll weevil in the South, which decimated the cotton industry. Beyond the the men and women who picked the cotton in the field, you had this whole industry of, of getting the cotton to the railroads and shipping it to Atlanta and New Orleans and port cities and and hundreds, thousands of people lost their jobs. And, and Atlanta, they would move to the city. And then you had prohibition. And you had that uh, moonshine and rum running uh, thing going on. So it was uh, unemployment, uh, gambling, bunko, a lot of bad people. And Frank Dupree was sort of in that world and totally unprepared for it. Yeah. It, you know, you've got this amazing picture that you paint in your opening chapters where you you give us a view of downtown shopping district Atlanta at the time. And it is Chock-a-block. I mean, it is so full of people. This is an emergent city in the South. This is a city that is really trying to sort of prove itself. It has rebuilt after Sherman's putting it to the torch. You know, we we are in a uh, the depression has not yet hit, and so we are in a growth phase in that sort of last major growth phase before 1929. And you really get the sense of Atlanta as a city on the make, right? And your 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 portrait of that is. So compelling. But you also make this counter argument. You say that given the wider national factors at play, the ones you just mentioned, uh, you also have a crime wave going through town. You have robberies, you have stickups, you have murders everywhere, violent crime. And and sort of feeding into this, the, the question that I have for you is you have these national elements, right? The unemployment, the post-World War I uh, sort of disaffection and, and illness and so forth. Okay. 
But then you also have these very specifically Atlantan elements. And you name the pool halls as this kind of scourge which is affecting Atlanta at the time, according to genteel society. There were more pool halls and um, um, you couldn't have a bar, but you had these soft drink parlors. And if you knew the right soft drink parlor, you could get something stronger. And so there was a... Uh, an underworld of uh, of these pool halls and bars that was the gathering place of people, uh, mostly young men, who always were trying to cook up a scheme. How can we get rich? And there was a certain uh, attraction to being known as a tough guy. And Frank Dupree sort of... Uh, coveted that standing as a tough guy. And he was hardly made out for that role. Well, let me ask you, uh, I want to talk about the heist. I want to get to the heist. But before we get to the heist itself, uh, let's let's set the stage with some of our characters here. You know, I have to say, as I was reading this, if this book had been repackaged and sold as fiction, it would be every bit as credible and believable. I mean, I don't often say this because I'm a fiction writer myself, but your characters really do read like something out of a novel. I mean, they really are just that vivid and unique and and specific and and kind of they have these quirks to them and these twists and these turns. Um, so I, I would love if we could just kind of run through some of the main cast members in this particular drama because they are really something else. Can we start with Frank? Yeah, yeah. Frank was uh, 18 years old. He was born in Abbeville, South Carolina, which is in the upstate of South Carolina. And his father was a welder blacksmith. His mother, on her third try, managed to kill herself. Uh, He had an older brother. And Frank's father came to Atlanta, bringing his uh, family with him. And he worked in the many, many rail yards uh, in the Atlanta area, which was a rail center for the Southeast. And then Frank dropped out of school. He was not very bright. And he had a few jobs. Then the war came and he was out of work for a long time. And after the war, he tried to join the Navy and uh, President Harding was shutting down or trying to closed down for economic reasons. And so he was forced out of the Navy, back to Atlanta. He has no money. He's walking around Atlanta, and he sees his uncle, a gentleman from uh, Abbeville, and he was what they used to call a drummer, a salesman. And he had a lot of money on him. He was flush at the time. And he and Frank uh, had a a fun evening, and he let Frank share his hotel room. Now, Now, what went on in the room, we don't really know. But we do know that Frank, in the middle of the night, got up, took his uncle's watch and $140 and bolted. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably safe to assume that there might have been a little whiskey drinking. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe given women how involved. Easy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so, who knows, yeah. And so he has this money, he lives on that for a while. He, he, he wasn't a frugal man. If he had the money, he spent it. He bought flashy clothes, he bought a suit. And uh, when that money started to run out, by then he was starting to hang around with a bad crowd. And as I said, they're always talking about 
their get-rich-quick schemes. And he had a friend named Jack Worth, or an acquaintance. Jack Worth was a Fagin-like character in the uh, uh, this set of people that hung out in these pool halls and whatnot. And uh, they talked about uh, stealing jewelry, you know, just shoplift jewelry. And Frank, uh, several weeks before the the uh, fateful day, went into another jewelry store on Peachtree, grabbed a couple of rings, and got away with it. And Jack Worth put him in touch with a pawnbroker named Abelson. They were able to pawn those rings, but not really a, a whole lot of money. But it was enough money for Frank to to continue living this this lifestyle. And he was living at the Child's Hotel, which was kind of a dodgy little place downtown. And it was there that he met Betty Andrews, who's the other character in this drama. And that was the that was the Davis and Freeman job, the, the yes, first place yes. that he knocked right. over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just grabbed a couple of rings there and uh, ran out into the street. And there was, as we've said, there was so much crime in Atlanta, it didn't even make the newspaper. It was, it was the police were like, okay, you know, terrible. So. Betty is there, and there's this kind of there. There are several very cinematic moments in there. She's playing a piano. Yeah, over the history of their relationship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's playing the piano in the mezzanine, and Frank uh, is uh, entranced by her music. He walks up and says, "I I really love the way you play the piano." And they get to chatting, and they go out and have uh, you know coffee and a pie and. And then they go to a movie and things start to move very, very quickly. And she tells him that she's a showgirl. She, there had been a um, musical that had just come through Atlanta called Chu Chin Chow, which was at the time a, a very popular body musical review. And Betty said she was in Chu Chin Chow, but quit and was, was staying in Atlanta. She liked it so much. So Frank has got this showgirl and they're, they're sort of dating, and they were, I'm pretty sure, uh, intimate at uh, Child's Hotel, although they had separate rooms. And they talk of marriage, and that's where Betty tells him, you know, look, I've, I've been used to the finest things, and, um, you know, if you want to go with me, you're, I'm going to need nice things. And she's, he says, like, well, well like what? And and Betty told Dupree, I'd like a diamond ring. And Dupree told Betty, I'll, I'll get you anything, as the songwriters uh, eventually uh, put it on paper. And that led Frank to Kaiser's Jewelry Store. So Betty must have known, or maybe she didn't, right? Let's, let's sit with this for a quick second, because Betty must have known that Jack did not have a steady job, that he was... Uh, a smooth talker. He was a bit of a swindler. Um, I I am charmed by your repeated use of the word loafer because you know having I had an old roommate uh, in college who was from Marietta. We spent a good good amount of time in in the Atlanta area, and one of my favorite things to read, of course, was creative loafing and yeah. uh, the great yeah. the great alt weekly of the yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of Inside Two Eighty Five. But um, you know, she must have known that. The this guy, I mean, he's he's kind of living fast, right? I mean, he's he's not pulling a nine to five at the insurance agency, if you know what I mean. But con- conversely, you know, Frank must have known 
that maybe not every part of Betty's story necessarily lined up with what she would have wanted to to portray herself as. So how do you, how do you understand their relationship at this time? I mean, for them to have just known each other a few weeks before, uh, days before. Yeah, yes, it was a matter of about a week. And I, I think it was entirely on Frank's side. I think Betty was, Betty was, uh, as we learn later, she, she was married and separated from her husband. And she was an experienced young lady. And it was all Frank. Frank was saying, well, how do I get Betty? I, I need to get her a diamond ring. And Jack Worth again reappears. And according to the police, uh, he and Frank go window shopping. And Jack Worth's idea is, the you know, well, why go in the store? Why not take a hammer or a, a rock and at night just smash the jewelry store window, grab what you can? That's the real that's a real job. But Frank, knowing that he had had no problem at Davis and Freeman stealing the rings, thinks, well, uh, I'll, I'll do that again. And again, according to uh, the police and the district attorney, he and Betty went window shopping and she pointed to the ring in question, a $2,500 ring. You can rub roughly multiply things by 12. So that's a very expensive ring today. And she said, that's the kind of ring I want. And Frank had that obviously in mind when on December 15th, in the middle of the Christmas shopping season and the middle of the afternoon, went into Kaiser's jewelry to steal it. Okay. So let's, let's, let's come to that moment. Um, and before you tell us what happened when Frank walked into the store. I think one thing that is really useful for us as far as historical context goes is, can you explain what security at a jewelry store in the 1920s would have looked like? Because it is not going to be the same as we have today. There are no cameras. There are no recorded feeds. You know, there, you do not have these kind of silent alarms with these sort of, you know, uh, protective cases and, and so forth. I mean, it's just a very different scenario. And of course, electric lighting was a comparatively, you know, 20, 30 year recent invention. And so, you know, uh, getting good looks at perpetrators and so forth, depending on the time of day, would not necessarily be guaranteed the way that it is today. So help us to understand kind of just what what Kaiser's would have looked like, say, the day before Frank gets there. Interestingly, because of the crime situation, which was not peculiar to Atlanta, it was something of a national concern, uh, crime. the Pinkerton Agency and the Jewelry Trade Group had gotten together and Pinkerton would assign one of their ops, as they called them, operatives, to uh, provide security at your jewelry store if you were concerned. And Kaiser's had, in fact, uh, taken advantage of that and had Pinkerton guards in the store. But generally, as you said, they they didn't have a whole lot of security. They, I think their greatest fear was safe crackers coming in at night you know, organized gangs of, uh, I believe they called them yeggs in the Y-E-G-G, -G, that was the uh, criminal slang for 
safe crackers and they would break in at night and and rob the safe rather than you know walk in with a gun although that certainly did happen said so thursday december 15th 1921 a day that changed atlanta's history tell us what happened <laughs> <laughs> well frank goes in and uh he goes up to a young lady who is at the counter and says to her, uh, I'd like a wedding ring. And she smiles and looks at him. He's a young man. He's got a suit on, but he has one of those sort of newsboy caps sort of pulled down. And he's his eyes were described as squinty. And she looked at him and said, you know, well, I'll show him some cheap rings because that's probably all he can afford. She takes him down to the, the section with the affordable rings. And he says, no, 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 ma'am, I'd like that ring in the window. Uh, and she says, well, that's a very expensive ring, young man. And he said, well, you know, basically, he says, I'm the customer, and I, I'd like to see that ring. She excuses herself and goes back and brings out Nat Ullman, who is the manager of the store. And on his way out, Nat stops and speaks with a young man who then positions himself by the door. And then Nat comes out, and they go through the same conversation about the ring and Frank says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a customer. I want to buy that ring. You have to show it to me. And Mr. Ullman, to his regret, I'm sure, brings the ring from the window, puts it down on a velvet cloth as, as jewelers do, and he describes it and says how wonderful it is, three and a half carats and all that. And Frank stares at it and puts out his left hand and grabs it and says, I'll take it and runs towards the door, which is blocked by Irby Walker, who is the Pinkerton detective. First day he had been at Kaiser's. He blocks the door. There's a struggle. The two men are grappling with one another. They fall back into the store, knocking over one of the glass, freestanding glass display cases. There's chaos, and then shots ring out. Two shots. And the Detective falls to the floor, begging for a doctor. Frank runs out into the street and uh, turns to the right and runs north on Peachtree Street, which is clogged with uh, traffic and shoppers, with his pistol in his right hand and the ring in his left. So Frank hightails it. He he get, he cuts yeah. out of the store and. Where does he go? He turns to the right, running north on Peachtree through all these shoppers and traffic, and he's got his gun still in his right hand, the ring and is in his left pocket, and he gets about five or six doorways up there to the motor entrance to the Kimball House, which is Atlanta's finest hotel, maybe the finest hotel in the southeast. <clears throat> it's the motor entrance. He runs in, and there are two men coming out the other way from the lobby, People follow Frank in from the street yelling, there he is, there he is. And one of the men who is coming out of the hotel where he has had lunch turns to Frank, looks at him, and Frank pulls his gun and shoots the man in the face. He falls to the ground badly wounded. Frank runs into the hotel lobby. The gunshot has been heard. The lobby is in tumult. All the Christmas decorations and whatnot, he runs through there into the hotel pool hall. Hotels all had a pool hall at the time. And there's nobody in there. It's the middle of the day. But a few of the regulars, I guess. And they say, get out of here. And Frank runs out of the pool hall 
And everyone, meanwhile, is dealing with the wounded man back in the hallway. Frank is not seen. He goes into a haberdasher store located in the lobby, buys a new tie, which he changes from the tie he had been wearing, and then runs out into the street and disappears. You know, it's a really remarkable account because he... (laughs) This is as public as it gets. I mean, this is the middle of the day. Right, one hundreds of, busiest, of people see him. Hundreds of people see him in one of the busiest cities in America, in one of the busiest seasons, in one of the busiest times of the day. I mean, it's just you could not have been more visible <laughs> if if you had sort of tried. It's incredible. And you know, we get back to the wounded detective. Uh, at Kaiser's. His name was Irby Walker. He was a very young man, married with a daughter, child, very young. He dies in the arms of one of the jewelers at Kaiser's. The other man that Frank shoots in the hotel hallway is a man named Graham West, who is the city controller. Back then, the the mayor ran the city, but the controller was the chief business officer. So he was a fairly prominent guy, Graham West. And there was probably more attention paying paid to the fact that Mr. West had been shot than this unknown, unfortunate uh, security guard, as we would call him today, was uh, slain. Uh, even though, of course, Pinkerton ops were the best of the best. And yes. they were highly trained, and their agency had been around since the Civil War, since I think be- slightly before the Civil War, if I remember correctly. They had a... a- you know, a dubious reputation in many areas, you know, for their union busting. and But in terms of, you know, private security, they were um, they were pretty good. But Atlanta also had a lot of police officers. And the shopping street, because of the crime situation, supposedly there were like a dozen officers in the vicinity of, of Kaiser's Jewelry. And yet they were not able to confront this man. No one... Uh, none of the police officers had a look at him or had any more information about him other than he had this newsboy cap and a gray overcoat over a suit and tie. And that really is remarkable. I was I was going to ask you how it was that he managed to escape the authorities if there were hundreds of people who had seen this take place and saw his frantic flight through the city on foot. I mean, that's just something you don't see. Well, I, I guess the, to some uh, degree, you know, here's a man running down the street with a gun and you're not going to stop and say, let me get a better look at him. You're going to turn and run away. And and the sidewalk crowds parted because of the trailing crowd yelling and stop him, stop him. And um, I guess human nature is, you know, save myself. I'm, uh, you, you know, you you might think someone would tackle him. And, and you would hope someone would tackle him, but no one did. And after he bought his tie, he gets out onto uh, <clears throat> Broad Street, and that's the last he has seen. They, the haberdasher man says, oh, yeah, a guy came through here and bought a tie. He went out that door, and that was the last uh, sight of him. What we do know is that he does somehow get back to the child's hotel, and he finds Betty, but the stakes are very different than he had thought they would be when he left her earlier that day, aren't they? Yes. um, He gets back to the child's hotel and 
He had drunk a lot of moonshine to get up the nerve to go into Kaiser's in the first place. He gets back. He finds Betty. Tells her he has the ring. He's crying. He he can't believe what he's done. And we have to get out of here. We have to. We have to. We can't stay here anymore. And Betty is not interested in leaving. In fact, she says, uh, Frank, I can't go with you without my sister. She has a sister named Hazel. And I can't leave without my sister. And Frank, Frank and she cry. And, and he decides that he will go away. And when he gets money, he will send for her and they will be together. So he leaves Betty at the child's hotel and manages to find his old buddy Jack Worth again. And Jack, uh, he tells, Frank tells him, look, I did the Kaiser job. And of course, the whole city is abuzz with this uh, sensational crime. And Jack says, oh, that took guts, Frank. And Frank treasured that remark from Jack Worth. That, that was a sign that he had done something daring. And Jack said, well, that took guts. So they go to the pawnbroker. He had, uh, Jack Worth had referred Frank to after that first nonviolent uh, snatch job. And this guy, Mr. Abelson, says, I want nothing to do with that ring. You know, somebody got killed for that ring. I am, the police are going to be everywhere. Uh, but I have an uncle in Chattanooga who, you know, you might be able to see. So they get the information about uh, the uncle in Chattanooga, and Jack Worth tells Frank, go to a movie. Sit in that movie, come out at 4 o'clock, I'll have something for you. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3am, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. There's this kind of interesting moment you describe right in the middle of their decision making. I mean, Jack is pretty well drunk as a skunk, and so he has to sober up. But there's this very unusual moment where he goes out for a bite to eat and gets a baked apple and a glass of milk. And I just couldn't help but think, you know, Tom, how wholesome was that for this <laughs> drunken murderer who just knocked yeah. over a jewelry store and gunned a man down? I mean, who goes out for a glass of milk, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, again, we're, we're dealing with a, an 18-year-old, and uh, it is an unusual detail that this is what you know, he had already had whiskey. And as you said, uh, I'm sure he, if if what he had done didn't sober him up, the milk and pie and, or a baked apple would have been what the doctor ordered. So 
he's got to fence the ring, but he can't do it in Atlanta because everybody's going to know this ring and every pawnbroker in the city is going to be on high alert and all the cops are going to be saying, I mean, this is the most public crime that's been committed and, and who knows when. And so there's just no chance that that item is too, too hot. So he gets up to Chattanooga, but it's not it's not exactly the kind of night flight that had the romance he might have been hoping for with Betty. It's a very different kind of night flight to Chattanooga, isn't it? It is. Um, when Frank emerges from the movie theater about four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Jack Worth approaches him with a man named Clifford Buckley. And Clifford is another 20, 25-year-old guy who drives for a local cab company. And he has a Packard Super 6, which was a hot car at the time. Big engine. And Jack says, uh, Clifford will take you up to Chattanooga. And Clifford says, I, I want $100. And Frank says, I, I, I don't have $100, but I'll get it once I hock this ring. Frank says, I'll give you 70 And they settle on 90 and uh, so about six o'clock at night, by the time these arrangements are uh, hammered out, Frank gets in the back seat of this Packard Super 6, driven by Clifford Buckley. They leave Atlanta and uh, head north on what is or was in partial uh, completion, the Dixie Highway, uh, which was being built to uh, funnel traffic from the Midwest, from Chicago, Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, people wishing to get to Florida. Florida in the 1920s was, you know, that's a whole nother story, the boom in Florida and the land swindles and all of that. But uh, people wanted to get to Florida. And one of the bottlenecks of that journey were the Georgia Mountains. The Georgia Mountains are not the Rockies or even the Appalachians. They're, they're not very high. They're about 4,000 max. But there are many of them. They're very knobby. And so the road winds through the Georgia mountains. And it was in a partial state of completion. Chain gangs were being used to build the uh, the road through the mountains. But Clifford Buckley, driving very carefully so as not to uh, attract any attention from the uh, revenue agents who were out looking for moonshiners who were running the other direction towards Atlanta with their, with their moonshine, they probably managed also, to... I imagine mm -hmm. he probably also didn't want to damage his Beautiful Packard <laughs> automobile, <Exactly. did> he? <laughs> and, and he has a guy in the back seat with a gun who has killed somebody. Although he yeah. would later tell the police he had no idea what he was doing, but obviously he had a sense that this is this could be a dangerous man. But Frank was asleep, he says, for much of the trip. They get to Chickamauga, the battlefield, Confederate battlefield. The landmark was the Iowa Monument, and they take a left turn there, and it's a straight shot downhill into Chattanooga where they arrive about four o'clock in the morning. Mr. Silverman's pawn shop is on 9th Street, which is the center of the black community in, in Chattanooga at the time. It's a historic street, the big nine. and uh, But it's about four o'clock in the morning and there's these two white kids in a very posh car uh, looking around and it's, they say, well, we're going to just sit in the car until seven o'clock when the shop was supposed to open. And they do. And at seven o'clock, they go in and see uh, Mr. Max Silverman, who is the pawnbroker. And that's um, that's a whole nother story. 
Yeah, well, I have two questions for you about that. I mean, first, it, it strikes me that for 1921 to have a motorized car taxi service, we have to remember that motorized cars were not widely available, especially not to the sort of the everyday American in the way that they are now, right? I mean, it's like taxis, you could not necessarily expect a taxi to be an automobile in those days. And so for the purposes of the investigation, you write that it was unusual to have such, uh, first of all, a car for a taxi and a car for a long-distance taxi, and then thirdly, a very, very nice and distinguishable car for a long-distance taxi. I mean, that would be like you and me knocking over a jewelry store and then going and finding some guy with a private jet nowadays. It just it just was that kind of out of the ordinary, right? And so I am curious, I want to talk about the, what's going on with the investigation in a second, but just that fact alone, how hard would it have been to obtain that kind of passage out of the city on such short notice in 1921? It couldn't have been easy. Well... There are trains, and Atlanta was, as mentioned, a train center. And he could have hopped a train to Chattanooga. There were probably three or four trains a day to Chattanooga. But the police uh, were watching the trains, and they were looking for a guy in a gray overcoat. Uh, that was the only real description they had of him, of a gray overcoat. And so that, was, that would have been unwise. There are freight trains. He could have jumped a freight train and just gotten out of Atlanta and then uh, regrouped somewhere else. There were other cab companies in Atlanta, but they were like short hop, uh, little Model A, Model T's, whatever they were at the time. But they would never have made it across the mountain. He had to get this kind of a uh, engine, Super 6. I'm not a car guy necessarily, but a Packard, Packard was the car to have in 1921. And Buckley had one and he got him to Chattanooga. So he gets there and he meets Max Silverman and Max Silverman runs this sort of pawn outfit. And and it's interesting because even though the ring is not hot in Chattanooga, Max is an experienced salesman, business owner. He knows when he's dealing with something which is maybe less than legal. And yeah. and he Especially he, when the uh the customer comes in and gives the name of John Doe. Yeah, there's that. Um, doesn't really help your case as a, as a no. negotiator, does it? But there's this really interesting moment where they do arrive at a deal. But I'm going to ask you, Tom, can you explain, because it is actually very interesting, can you explain how in those days a sale like that worked. It was not simple. There was this thing called a pawn ticket, which I don't think we use anymore. I mean, I certainly no, no. have never seen one. So how did it actually work that Frank comes in with this hot property and then has to come to really messy terms with Max? Well, I think generally the, the pawn shops, such as Mr. Silverman, they dealt with people who were short of cash. And so they'd bring in, a, you know, a candlestick or something like that. And the guy would say, I'll give you two bucks for that candlestick and the pawn ticket. Then you come back when you want, if you need the candlestick back, you present the ticket. And he says, OK, you have to pay me four dollars to get it back. And that's where the, the 
pawnbroker makes his money. That's uh, I have to give credit to Wendy Wallison, who wrote a book in hock, Pawning in America from Independence through the Great Depression. She walked me through this whole, uh, what likely would have happened when Frank Dupree walks in, you know, a kid, and he calls himself John Doe. Now, we, we Silverman told the police he had no idea that this was the ring from Atlanta. And he that may very well have been true. The, chat had, the crime had, had occurred less than 24 hours before. There was no 24-hour news cycle. Uh, the Chattanooga Evening Paper, the night of the 15th, had nothing in it about the Atlanta murder, nor did the Morning Paper, which he may not even have seen. So, But he has to realize this, this kid doesn't have a $2,500 diamond ring. The story doesn't and, add up. Yeah, it doesn't add up. But so he begins the negotiation process by Frank thinks, you know, Frank probably thinks he's going to get $2,000 for this $2,500 ring. It's a $2,500 ring. I need, and he, um, the guy says, I'll give you 400 for it. And the pawnbrokers have, have a system. And as Wallison explained it to me, they have to figure out what they're going to do with this ring if Frank doesn't come back and get it. To have a $2,500 ring in the window on 9th Street in Chattanooga, nobody's going to come in there to buy it. But Silverman certainly would know how to deal with that. He, he probably knew that, uh, well, I can sell that ring downtown to somebody and, and get his money back. But that's trouble. And, you know, there's a certain amount of danger uh, dealing with this, obviously... Uh, a ring acquired in some probably nefarious way. So he says, it's, uh, I'll give you 400. Frank wants 700. Uh, he realizes he's not going to get the 2,000 of his dreams. He gets, he wants 700. They go back and forth and they agree on 600. But Frank will get, I'm rounding a few numbers off here. Uh, he gets, uh, you'll get 400 now and a pawn ticket. And if in the future you realize you're never going to, you're not going to be able to come back and redeem this ring, you know, send me the pawn ticket and I'll send you 200 more dollars. And Frank is in no situation really to, to argue. You know, what's he going to do? Take the ring and, uh, and go somewhere else. He, Buckley's got to get back to Atlanta. And so Frank grudgingly accepts this deal. And while they're sitting around waiting for the money to be put together, uh, Mr. Silverman's nephew, I believe, a young man, says to Frank, so you're the guy who did the Atlanta job. So they did know by a late, the late stages of the transaction that this was someone who had killed a man in Atlanta for this diamond ring. But Frank ends up with $400 in cash, 90 of which he has to give to Buckley, who drove him up there. They had agreed on he wanted 100. He gave him 90. Buckley takes him to the Chattanooga train station. Frank, he doesn't know where Frank goes. Buckley turns the Packard back across the mountains back to Atlanta. You know, it's interesting because you, you really see the picture here of... A man, Frank, 
whose options are dwindling the longer he spends away from Atlanta. He just doesn't have the kind of purchasing power and negotiating power that he thought he was going to have. And, you know, I one of the things that, that really struck me as I was reading your book, Tom, is that you have an extraordinary amount of detail of what it is like to be a man in flight. I mean, we really see his decision-making evolve at every step of his being on the lamb, and we're not even halfway done with that yet. We haven't even gotten to the next stages. But it, it, this is just one of those sort of pivot points where you see his his field of options or kind of his field of action diminishing much faster than he thought it would. He had the uh, $300 plus from Silverman, and he decided he would take a train from Chattanooga to Norfolk. During his brief stint in the Navy, he had been in Norfolk, so he had some familiarity with that uh, city. And that's where he headed. And Buckley goes back to Atlanta, and he stops in Rome, Georgia, which is just where you start to come out of the mountains in northwest Georgia. And he calls his employer, Buckley does, to explain where he's been all night. And he said, well, I had to take a guy to Chattanooga. He was in a hurry. And his boss, Alvin Bellisle, is sort of a uh, celebrity in Atlanta because he owns all these fancy cars. And he's like the city's unofficial chauffeur when uh, presidential candidates came, he would drive them around. And Belisle had reported the car missing to the Atlanta police. And then he calls them back and says, well, the, the car has turned up. Uh, he said he had to take some guy to Chattanooga. So the police say, whoa, and this could be vital. And they meet Buckley when he returns to Atlanta and arrest him. And he says, I took a guy, you know, he tells them, I, I, I took a guy to Chattanooga to a pawn shop. And Buckley a representative from Kaiser Jewelry and two detectives get on a train and head to Chattanooga to uh, see Mr. Silverman. That was the first really big uh, break in the case. They still don't even know Frank's name. Where, Where is Betty during all of this? Betty is at Child's Hotel. She's still there. She's still living there. And and we Betty doesn't really emerge into the public consciousness for a week or more after the crime. there's, it, it, She comes into the picture when Frank reaches Norfolk, Virginia, and he's living at a hotel up there. And after he gets settled, he sends a letter or a telegram to Buckley, the chauffeur, the driver, uh, care of Mr. Belle Isle's uh, cab company. And he says he includes a money order for $40 for Betty Andrews. He's supposed, she's at the Child's Hotel. Will you take this $40 to Betty Andrews? Tell her to come to Norfolk with that money. Well, Mr. Belisle, Buckley's in jail at this point. He's being held as a, as a witness. And Belisle takes it to the police. And the police now know that Frank, and it's signed Frank Dupree. So that is their 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 break that this this is who we're looking for frank dupree they go to child's hotel 
The desk clerk says, oh, yeah, Frank Dupree stayed here, and he had a girlfriend who also lives here, Betty Andrews. And the police find Betty Andrews and talk with her. And she admits knowing Frank. She admits uh, having seen him on the day of the crime, and he was crying and upset. He wanted me to go away with him, but I had nothing to do with it. I don't want to go away with him. She basically abandons him. And the police get her to work for them. And uh, this is she where... Flips. She flips. She flips. She flips. She sends a wire back to Frank. And they're going to wait. And Western Union office in Norfolk, the police up there have it staked out that Frank is going to come back. The letter had said, Betty, send him a wire to let him know her arrangements, and he would pick her up in Norfolk. So they send a wire back there, and they expect Frank to show up to pick it up. But Frank reports that one of the Western Union girls was was sweet on him, and she gave him a warning that the cops were uh, staking out the Western Union officer. So he didn't go to pick up the telegram from Betty Andrews. It really is remarkable because this story as a whole is really unfolding in about three or four different cities kind of at the same time. I mean, it's it's progressing very, very quickly. And you have the cops kind of going from Atlanta to Chattanooga to Norfolk to he uh, finally you write that he ends up in Detroit for a minute. Uh, but this whole I mean, it's like the snowball rolling downhill. I mean, it's just it's gaining speed, it's gaining momentum, and it's going to crash into something. Yeah, well, Frank now knows that Norfolk is hot. He can't stay in Norfolk either. The police are looking for him. So the Norfolk and Western, one of the things you uh, uh, are amazed by is the the railroads and how they were such a great uh, way people moved around the country in in the 1920s. The Norfolk and Western Railroad, he goes west to Detroit, which is at the end of the line. Now, they said he was going to, go to Canada, but that was probably not his plan. He just went there because he felt safe in Detroit. So he goes and he's living in Detroit and uh, running out of money. And that's when he makes the decision to send a taunting letter to the Atlanta police, which probably led to his eventual uh, execution. Well, yeah, there's it struck me, you know, there's two letters that he sends overall. There's the first letter, which is I'll get you to to tell us about this sort of the boneheads letter, which was not not smart. I mean, he he sends a letter about boneheads, but it's a pretty boneheaded thing to do himself. Um, but then there's a second letter which he sends to Max Silverman. Let's do the boneheads letter first. What what did he say then? Who was he sending it to, and what and, and what did he say then? Frank read the papers when they when they broke into his. Um room in Detroit in a very cheap hotel. It was filled with newspapers. He was following the uh, news accounts, which were in the Detroit papers, uh, about how this desperado was um, on the lam and the Atlanta police were being much criticized. So he, he sends a letter on January 12th to the Atlanta Constitution, which had been the newspaper most critical of the Atlanta police. 
and this whole crime wave that had the city terrified. And he says, um, I wrote you a letter some time ago. I don't think he got it. I would like to say that I think Atlanta has a bunch of boneheads for detectives. They don't seem to be able to catch anybody. I gave them several chances to get me, and they have failed so far. And then he suggests that um, Mr. Belisle, who had uh, given his original letter, the Betty Andrews letter, to the police, he says, thanks to Mr. Belisle, I will try to repay him later for this favor. So he's basically threatening Belisle. Then he goes on to talk about the other man he shot, uh, Mr. West, Graham West. And he talks about the whole day, and he says basically that, um, you know, Buckley had nothing to do with it, and Betty Andrews had nothing to do with it. I almost forgot Mr. West. Sorry I had to shoot him, but he insisted on stopping me, and there was no other way out of it. I think he will mind his own business hereafter. And then he signs it, The Peachtree Bandit, P.S. My Age is 19. So it was, uh, a, you know, a taunting letter. And there's a tradition of taunting letters in the, in, you know, I guess most famously was Jack the Ripper, who wrote several letters to Scotland Yard. And in Atlanta, uh, at this previous to Frank's uh, crime, there was a, a local banker who managed a pension fund for teachers and just fleeced the fund and disappeared. He sent a letter back saying, you know, look, I made a mistake. If you'll let me come back, I'll work hard and earn the money back. Uh, he was arrested. And there was another guy, uh, Mr. Woodward, Floyd Woodward, who was sort of the head of the mob in Atlanta at the time. And he disappeared and wrote a letter back also taunting the police. So there was a little tradition, and I think Frank was aware of that, but it was an ill-advised move to send what became known as the bonehead letter. Well, it comes back to haunt him during his trial, which we'll talk about next next time. But um, but for now, you know, he he sends that one. It it more or less pisses off most of the Atlanta police force as as it as it would. Uh, doesn't make him many friends. But then he, I mean, I really want to ask you about this because he sends this other letter to Max Silverman, and you know, you write that this is one of the strangest parts of the whole narrative that Frank more or less caught himself with the evidence in that letter. It was either evidence that he didn't know was there because he was a moron, but he wasn't that much of a moron. He just sort of made himself out to be. He's actually very savvy. Or it was evidence that he did know was there and he was just getting too cocksure, right? He was getting a little too smarmy or smug. So what happened? Well, he was out of money in Detroit, and he realized that the only way I can get get any money uh, was, you know, I've, I've still got this pawn ticket. It's worth $200 to me. I can send it to Mr. Silverman. Well, if Frank had been reading the newspapers as closely as I think he was, he missed the whole thing about how the Atlanta police, when they went to Chattanooga and interviewed Silverman the first time, took the ring with them back to Atlanta. They brought a jeweler from Kaiser's. He said, yes, that is the ring. Police took it from Mr. Silverman and said, if it's, and Silverman explained the transaction he had worked out with the guy. 
Of course, no, I had no idea, but here is the deal I made with Mr. Doe. And they said, well, if, if he gets back in touch with you, you will let us know. And so this letter arrives to uh, Mr. Silverman saying, here's the pawn ticket, send the $200, general delivery, Detroit post office. And Silverman tells the Chattanooga detectives who have been on his case day after day after day, waiting to see if there's any word from Frank Dupree. They notify Atlanta police. They're back on the trains heading for Detroit, and the Detroit cops have staked out the post office in Detroit. It's a grand, a huge building. As someone someone described it as a hell of a place to buy a two-cent stamp. It was magnificent architecture, this the post office and federal building in Detroit. They've got plainclothes cops everywhere. Frank, uh, I forget the, the term they used, ambled or something, strolled up, and all these cops jump out with their guns. Don't move or I'll blow you back to Atlanta, one of the detectives shouted. And and the, the run of the Peachtree Bandit ended there in the Motor City. I mean, it's just... If I was on the lamb and I was staying in a little rental property or somewhere like that, I'm not going to send a letter with my return address on there, right? I mean, it's just sort of like, you got to wonder what... There was no Venmo. (laughs) Uh, If there was, this would be a very, very unusual, uh, you know, very different story. I I mean... In, In Detroit, in his room, they found newspapers uh, where... In the society columns, then, they would say that Mr. and Mrs. Hughes are going to Miami. And it was winter in Detroit. Mr. and Mrs. Hughes are going to Miami. And so he would be able to look up, well, Mr. and Mrs. Hughes live on Main Street in Gross Point. And so they were suggesting that he was going to break into these abandoned, you know, unoccupied uh, winter homes of Detroit residents who had gone to Florida for the winter. And that was how he was going to make some money. But you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they tested Frank and determined he was a high-grade moron. So he was not <laughs> particularly capable of uh, dealing with, you know, the situation he found himself in. That's fair. It does make one wonder whether uh, high-grade moron could have been another title for your book. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, those, you know, the terminology of nineteen. 19- 20s uh, mental health professionals was pretty cruel. I have two questions for you as we conclude this part of the story. We started with the city. I want to wrap up. I want to end with a view of the city. By this point, nearly the whole of Atlanta is just in an uproar following this case. The Peachtree Bandit, who's been at large for days and days on end, eluding police in four different cities in America, has finally been apprehended. Everyone is taking a side. Everybody is reading the stories obsessively. Re- reporters are covering this like, like white on rice. It is consuming Atlanta. It is eating Atlanta alive. Why is there so much drama about this one murder at this time? Well, it is... You know, the city in the grip of crime, the the manhunt, the the criticism of the police for failing to to capture this guy and then his arrest. 
the taunting letter and his arrest, and and he's bundled onto this train which travels all night from Detroit through Cincinnati. They have to change trains. He arrives in Atlanta, and the police are waiting uh, to greet their fellow detectives. And there was a huge crowd. There was a thousand people were at the. Well, some of them went to the wrong station because the news tour two train stations at the time in Atlanta. Some of the people went to the wrong station because they were misdirected. But at the station, he arrived, and, and he, Frank was a little man, uh, and these cops were big guys, and they almost had physically had his feet off the ground as they walked him off the train. And and it wasn't like a bloodthirsty mob, but it was just people, we want to see this guy. We want to see this desperado who has who had, who had boasted that he would never be caught. And yet here he was. He's brought from the railroad station directly to police headquarters, where his father has has come to town, and Betty Andrews is there. Betty is wailing. That word is used. Betty wailing and Betty Andrews became uh, synonymous over the next several months. She's always wailing, and she's wailing. Frank comes in. He smiles at Betty, and he's booked for murder and put in the Atlanta jail, Tower. The Fulton County Tower, as it was known. It had an actual tower on top of it. I've seen the photos of the tower, and they are chilling. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, when you think of it, if you think of a place called the tower, it's six stories of red brick, and on top it looks like a, so almost an Italian tower, which... The police could go up there, and it was located in uh, an area of town where the police could be up there and survey uh, the malefactors at, at work in in that part of the city. Well, and for the purposes of your story, that building was an ideal place to hang somebody. Yeah, that's each county in Georgia was allowed to do its own hangings. There was no state uh, facility with, uh, you know, uh, where executions would be handed out, each each county. And there were gallows constructed for that purpose in the Fulton County Jail quite frequently. There was an, an amazing number of people were hanged annually in Atlanta. These are legal state and county authorized hangings, not the lynchings of, uh, that were an entirely different subject. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest today has been Tom Hughes, author of Hanging the Peachtree Bandit, the true tale of Atlanta's infamous Frank Dupree. Available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next week for the conclusion of our interview. And ignore the spoiler in the book title. The end of the story is just as compelling as the beginning. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com.
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.